Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What You Miss This Week. I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast has well, some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romain Bostic and Joe Weisenthal. What you miss? Come on, it's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, well, it was a rough one for global markets. US stocks suffered their worst weekly route since March. In fact, so did global stocks. And investors had plenty to be concerned about, with a resurgence in coronavirus cases in Europe, renewed lockdowns across that continent, rising hospitalizations here in the United States, as well as disappointing earnings details from some of the biggest tech companies. Now, during Wednesday's sell-off, for example, we took a look at what might be out there to stem this sort of decline. Many banking on more fiscal stimulus that had been slow coming in the US. So in his latest piece for Bloomberg Opinion, former New York Fed President Bill Dudley suggests that the Fed may not be the place to turn to right now, writing that no central bank wants to admit that it's out of firepower. Unfortunately, the US Federal Reserve is very near that point. This means America's future prosperity depends more than ever on government spending plans. So we dug into this with Dudley about his column and started by asking him what the economic impact would be if we don't get further fiscal stimulus until well after the election. Well, obviously, if we got it right after the November election, it wouldn't be a big deal. But I think the prospects are that we're not going to get anything substantial uh, probably until after the inauguration, which is many, many months away. Uh, you know, most people at this point uh, think that uh, Joe Biden is probably going to be elected president. I just can't imagine uh, the, the, the outgoing Trump administration, if that happens, is willing to do a deal, a substantial fiscal stimulus deal with the Democrats. So it's not a, we're not talking about a week or two, I, I don't think. I think we're talking about months. Mm-hmm. And that's particularly important in an environment where the pandemic is worsening. And so, therefore, there's going to be more social distancing. Uh, there's going to be more uh, you know, forced lockdowns of various kinds of businesses. Uh, and so, I think the you know the outlook for the economy is you know is is deteriorating. I mean, yeah. you know, we're looking in the rearview mirror. This week, we'll get the third quarter GDP. It'll show the biggest advance in third quarter GDP ever after the worst decline in the second quarter. But that's very much uh, in the rearview mirror. Yeah. We fell off a fiscal cliff at the end of July. It hasn't had much consequence for the economy yet. Uh, because the fiscal stimulus was so great that it actually boosted household savings. And because the reopening that we, we, we saw in the economy in July and August and September actually also provided support to the economy. But now everything seems to be moving in the wrong direction. And I think that's really what the stock market's reacting to uh, today. So, I mean, essentially up uh, sort of what the last fiscal stimulus did, because when they first started talking about negotiating this next round of fiscal stimulus, the economy was in a relatively deep shape, a good shape, I should say. Uh, It was obviously still deep in the hole, but it was starting to show progress. We're now at a stage where we are talking about uh, an increase in COVID cases, the potential for more lockdowns, and presumably the potential for some sort of uh, pullback in economic uh, catalyst, economic spending, if you will. Does that sort of change the thesis that whatever gets passed out of Congress, if they get something, is going to have any real material effect? 
Well, I think if it's, you know, if it's sizable, it can do exactly what ha what we saw happen with the first fiscal stimulus, you know, that was implemented, you know, back in March and April. Uh, that did provide a lot of support to, to the economy because it bolstered household income and supported small businesses. And so essentially kept the economy going. Now, obviously, you know, we don't really know how the pandemic's going to un unfold. But what we can say right now is that at the margin, things are definitely worsening. And you know, while the quarterly GDP numbers will be fine, if we look at things you know, on, a, on a sequential basis going forward, I think we're definitely going to see a substantial slowing of growth. And, there is, and you can't rule out a prospect of a, of a double dip if things, get, if things get much worse. Bill, I want to go back to the meat of your argument about the Fed being out of ammo. Let's for, set aside fiscal stimulus for a second. Why not yield curve control? Why not say more aggressive forward guidance? Well, we're not going to hike rates until inflation hits 3%. Why not negative rates? Why not more asset purchases at the long end? Why, in your view, do none of these things count as meaningful uh, powder still, dry powder to be used for uh, the Federal Reserve? I think the main point is that the Federal Reserve could clearly do more along the lines of what you just suggested. The real question is how much of an impact would it actually have on the economy? I would say at this point, not very much because the Fed's already accomplished most of what monetary policy can do to support the economy. Uh, they've gotten interest rates down. Uh, that stimulated the auto and housing sector. They've gotten financial markets uh, up uh, and financial markets are well functioning. I mean, at this point, if the 10-year Treasury note yield fell from you know 80 basis points to 40 basis points and 30-year mortgage rates fell from 3% to 2.5%, do you think it would really make that much difference in terms of the, right. the trajectory of the economy? I, so it's not, that, it's not really quite right to say the Fed's out of ammunition. They're not quite out of ammunition, but the effects of the ammunition that they have left, they're, re they're reaching rapidly diminishing returns in terms of consequences of, of, the, of those types of actions. Bill, are you seeing anywhere else around the world the tandem nature of monetary policy and fiscal policy actually working in unison? Well, I think, you know, everywhere there's, you know, a, a coordination problem in terms of getting the timing right. Uh, you know, I think in the United States it's particularly difficult just because the, the politics are so partisan. I mean, I think, you know, in a parliamentary-style government where one party has control and, and can sort of essentially enact their program, uh, you can you can you can bring forward fiscal stimulus a lot more quickly uh, and, and, and without as much controversy. I mean, right here we have such a big split between the Democrats and the Republicans in terms of what should be done on the fiscal on the fiscal side. So do you think, so what I mean, I guess what options are really left here? I mean, if you don't have uh, the political will to sort of do the fiscal side of it and you have uh, a monetary policy structure at the moment that I guess some people are questioning whether uh, it's going to be uh, enough to actually uh, pull up the slack. I mean, what options are there right now for the economy? Well, the first thing I think is we could do we could manage the coronavirus pandemic a lot better. I mean, I think if we you know, all wore masks, for example, we'd be doing better. Uh, in terms of the trade-off between the pandemic and the actual uh, economy. Uh, you know, if people practice social distancing well and mask wearing well, uh, the pandemic won't be as severe and therefore we can have more opening up of the economy. So I think we could do a lot better than we're doing right now right. just by being more practical in terms of how we actually address the pandemic.
Bill, you mentioned that, you know, it's kind of hard to see a major economic impact from, say, some marginal decrease at long end rates. But one of the things that we've seen in this crisis has been the Fed using tools that aren't rate policy and kind of getting into credit policy, trying to get more direct uh, aggressive about channeling money to certain sectors. So there's the Main Street lending facility, which by and large hasn't been used that much, but it exists. There's the Muni facility. Could the Fed, in your view, do more with, say, credit policy in which they not just do uh, make moves to make interest rates easier, but being uh, more aggressive and taking risks that maybe it won't get paid back on loans and trying to get money into the private sector through a more aggressive use of some of these tools? Well, they could certainly make the terms and conditions of the Main Street lending facility more active so that, that you get more take up. In terms of the other programs that are liquidity programs that basically support markets, you know, the markets are already well-functioning. So the programs have actually been successful. You look at the corporate program, the municipal program, those markets are working well. Co companies have, and cities and states have access to, to funding. So I don't think if you change the terms and conditions of those facilities, it would make that much difference. But the main, you're absolutely right. The Main Street Lending Program is one area where the Fed could make the terms and conditions uh, more attractive. And the fact is they do have, you know, ba a backstop uh, from the U.S. Treasury. So if money is lost, it's going to be lost by the U.S. Treasury, not by the Federal Reserve. So I think that's certainly an option. Bill, we have GDP out tomorrow, and it's going to be an excessive number, a record number, but it's going to hide an awful lot of weakness and an ongoing perspective that the U.S. economy is still 4% lower than it was pre-pandemic. Are you optimistic that the U.S. economy will manage to claw back that 4% without fiscal stimulus? Well, I think it's just going to be a slow go f road from here. I mean, I think that uh, the most likely uh, scenario is that uh, we continue to have a, a recovery uh, with some downside risk of a, of a double dip. But I think, I think it's just going to be very slow going from here because the fiscal stimulus has been spent. The monetary policy Fed has done most of what they can do. And so at this point, really the course of the pandemic and the ability to you know, get an uh, effective vaccine and have that vaccine disseminated broadly. That's really the key things now in terms of the economic outlook. And a raft of big data this week, of course, better than expected U.S. GDP report, durable goods orders beat, so did personal income, and measures of home prices showed that actually the housing market remained strong. Under the hood, though, consumer confidence, well, it unexpectedly pulled back in October. Americans becoming more concerned about the future prospects for employment, the future prospects for income. That's as cities are being forced to slow reopening plans. Just take Chicago, for example, shutting indoor dining. If we see further dips in the economic recovery, then this is even more painful news for state and city budgets, which are, well, of course, strained by the pandemic, to put it mildly. Many states predicting billions of dollars of financial shortfalls in 2021. Municipal finances, they need all the money that they can get at this point. So some states, well, they're actually looking at pretty innovative ways to make ends meet, including putting legal marijuana sales on the ballot to help raise money. So we spoke about this with Vivian Azer. She is the Managing Director and Senior Research Analyst over at Cowan. And we started by asking her just how pivotal this moment, this election is for the movement to legalize cannabis. 
Oh, we think uh, there's a lot of momentum uh, potential at the state level coming out of this election. So as you rightly pointed out, uh, there are five states that have a total of six ballot initiatives in play. Um, so four for adult use and, and two for medical. We think on the adult use side, Arizona and New Jersey um, are quite likely to pass. And then on the medical side, Mississippi and South Dakota. Net, we think those four states would drive an incremental $3 billion in industry revenue um, by 2025. And then to your point around COVID budget deficits, we've also done work um, around the potential for state legislatures um, to make moves. You know, we know that New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, their governor had already created a cannabis task force recognizing that geographic um, denseness and you know the ease of, of cross-border movement um, would require some kind of coordination. Governor Cuomo um, has and, and his administration have come out um, in the last two weeks reiterating their intent to move forward with adult use at the top of 2021 with an aspiration to have something formalized by April. Um, we think that can have the potential for a domino effect and also mm. drive at Rhode Island and Pennsylvania those four states would be another $6 billion by 2025 and in to, industry revenue. And you get the sense here, Vivian, that this is going to be accelerated to a certain extent on the legislative side and even on the regulatory side uh, by some of the potential budget shortfalls. Is that a factor here? Well, New York is facing a two-year, $30 billion budget deficit. So I think any little bit helps. Um, what we are um, careful to remind investors of, though, is that if New York um, is going to use cannabis as a means of filling a budget deficit that's COVID-driven, the um, licensing framework is probably going to look different than what we've seen historically. Because the reality of legalizing adult-use cannabis is it does take time for the tax revenues to actually start flowing in because you've got to create the regulatory framework. You have to go through the licensing process. Those license holders are going to have to expand their cultivation and build out incremental dispensaries. So it is quite possible that the cost to acquire a license in a state like New York could be substantially higher than we're used to seeing. Vivian, from what you've seen in Canada, for example, and the way in which we've spoken with leaders of some of the publicly traded cannabis companies, and at the moment they don't say competition is each other, canopy growth versus another one, it's competition is the illegal tra trade at the moment. How quickly does that get overwhelmed by regulation? At what point, how quickly do we see all mm. means of buying cannabis become a regulated means of buying? Um, so for the for the U.S., it's a little bit different, right? I mean, Canada went nationally legal overnight. In in the U.S., we can, will continue to have a patchwork state by state framework until there is really meaningful change um, with a deschedule at the federal level. That's not anything that we anticipate happening before the 2022 midterms, and that would require you know. Number on a blue wave in, in 2020, uh, which we think will bring a modified version of the States Act. You know, that's the decriminalization that VP candidate Harris talked about in her um, debate against um, Vice President um, Pence. Um, we think that's step one. Um, it would be a modified version of the States Act because it does need to include social equity given um, the current um, climate. Um, and then step two would be a, a national framework, but we don't think that's imminent. So talk more about what needs to happen at the uh, federal level. Okay, so we get all these states uh, increasingly legalizing momentum, but in terms of like banking, other things like that, what, what do we need to see at the federal level to really sort of accelerate change there? So a blue wave, um, which is what my colleagues in the Washington Research Group are calling for. And we define that as a Biden win of the White House, the Democrats maintaining control of the House and picking up 52 or more seats um, in the Senate, which is our current House view. With that, we get what I just referenced, which is the modified version of the Senate.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This week was a major one for big tech. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, Google CEO Sundar Pichai and Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey all being hauled on Capitol Hill to testify before a Senate committee just days before the US election and of course just a day before their own earnings. They came then thick and fast and on Friday well, the Nasdaq 100 led the losses for major US indices after Twitter plunged yet this more than 20% user growth missed estimates. Apple was also down on worries for iPhone sales and China growth. We got stuck into tech earnings with eBay because its marketplace growth slowed in the third quarter too, worrying investors that an online shopping boost from the COVID-19 pandemic isn't sustainable. Now, while gross merchandise volume, the value of all goods sold on the site, was up a whopping 22% in the third quarter. Now, the measure was down from 26% growth eBay saw in the second quarter. We spoke about these results with eBay president and CEO, Jamie Iannone, and started by asking him, well, how's he going to convince investors that he's leveraging the growth he's seeing at eBay to make it sustainable? Yeah, what would be great about the quarter that we had, 21% GMV growth, 26% revenue growth, uh, added active buyers to 183 million buyers. So we really feel well positioned for the holiday season. You know, eBay is a great in, in all kinds of economic times. When times are tough, they have great values on the platform. Uh, and when times are well, people want to shift to e-commerce and, and come on the site. So we're really pleased with, with where we are and what we're seeing. Why do you think investors aren't pleased with your quarterly guidance for next quarter? Is invariably there going to be a bit of a slowdown? We know we're not going to be hopefully locked in as much as we were in March time. But how do you prove to them the growth you can hold on to and sustain. You know, we're in such a dynamic environment right now. Things are changing uh, daily. You know, we were going on our call yesterday as France was shutting down. We're seeing changes in Germany. Uh, so there's just a lot of moving parts with the business. But what I feel great about is, is that our strategy is right on. You know, we're defending our core business. We launched new verticals. We're going after this $500 billion total addressable market in non-new and season. Mm. And we're low single digits, uh, sorry, high single digits, low double digits in terms of penetration. So there's lots of opportunity for us on a go forward basis. I want to dig in on that non-new in season. It's an interesting take. It's all about looking at collectibles, refurbished goods, vintage watches, collectible sneakers, high-end coffee machines that you get refurbished. You just talked about a phenomenal addressable market there. How did you zero in on this? What's really the opportunity for you? Yeah, well, it's really been the core of eBay. The core of eBay is amazing values, those amazing finds. And we have so much opportunity and a right to win in that space. It's also more than 50% of our GMB, and it's got a lot of growth potential. So we're investing in a lot of specific areas. Like this quarter, we announced some new experience in watches, where we're authenticating all watches over $2,000. We're using escrow over $10,000. We're adding new buying channels, and we're seeing great early results. And while that took us months to build, weeks later, we put the same experience in sneakers. Huge, great growing market for us. Um, and in sneakers, we're gonna be authenticating every sneaker sold on the platform over $100, starting with top brands and then growing to, to all sneakers. 
And what's great about categories like that is they bring on a younger consumer, mm. a Gen Z millennial consumer. And when they come onto the platform, they not only buy sneakers, they buy across the site. We see they end up buying in 10 different unique categories across the experience. So by investing in this area where it is really unique because of our consumer selling, because of our global footprint, we think we're on the right strategy. Look out, real, real, look out, goat. I know you've spoken very passionately before, Jamie, about the seller, about your relationship with the seller, about ensuring that they keep coming back to the eBay platform. You're making payments easier. I know that you've been striking deals with UPS and the like. How do you see the holiday season unfolding for the seller? How do you see the holiday season unfolding for us actually getting our packages? Yeah, well, look, um, the average household has $4,000 of items that they could sell on eBay, and less than 20% of that is online. So it's a big opportunity to bring in what we call the consumer seller, the average people like you and I uh, selling on eBay. And this is a great time period. You know, people are having to spend more time at home. Uh, they may need more cash. So eBay's there for them. And we're doing a lot of things to make the selling process even easier. And what we see is when a buyer comes on and tries selling, they become twice as valuable as a buyer because they've tried both parts of the marketplace. So we're really leaning into consumer selling and making that a, a big focus. We've got 19 million sellers on the platform uh, and really looking to continue to grow that. When you say you're helping attract younger customers at the moment, are you already seeing that re rewards at the moment? It was always thought that eBay sort of skewed towards an older male consumer. Are you already seeing that sort of numbers, the data that you focus on shifting? Yeah, in fact, it's our fastest growing segment is actually the the Gen Z customer. So we're really leaning in there. I talked about the example of sneakers, but there's lots of other categories that we're leaning in on. And importantly, we're also going out to where those buyers are. So you're seeing a completely different level of marketing from us. When you look at the marketing that we're doing in watches, or we looking at the marketing that we're doing in sneakers. The other big launch that we had uh, just last week was in certified refurbish. So now the certified refurbish program on eBay includes a 30 day hassle-free return, two-year warranties, and of course, eBay money-back guarantee. So you're essentially getting a like-new product for, for you know, probably 50% off what you'd be paying otherwise with a high level of trust. And that's been really important to us is how do we communicate that eBay is a really trusted platform? We have the money-back guarantee. And this certified refurbished program is a good example of that. That's another example that'll bring in a, a younger demographic because they're constantly looking for values. And equally importantly, they're looking for sustainable commerce. So being able to use those products again and again is really important to younger generations. Good value across the board. It seems those Stiefel analysts were saying, hey, your shares are pretty good value right now. You should buy them back. Are you looking at doing that? Yeah, we think our shares are undervalued as well. When we look at the $500 billion TAM opportunity that we have, um, we think it's really exciting. When we look at the early feedback, what the community is saying about the areas that we're investing in, like the um, sneakers launch, it's really powerful. But even more powerful is the payments. So we'll, mm. by 2020 do, 2022, do $2 billion, $500 million in income in our payments business. And we're now live in five countries. We're already processing 20% of the on eBay platform through payments. And payments is not only great for the business, but it's also great for the seller and the buyer. The sellers who are on our new payments platform have a 10-point higher NPS than, than sellers who are not mm. on it. So we're really excited. It takes friction out for the buyer. They get more choices across credit card, Google Pay, Apple Pay. So it's a huge horizontal effort that's not going to only pay for the business, but it'll pay off for our customers. You're not going to ask them whether you go buy them back then. <laughs> we, think, we, we think our shares are, uh, you know, we did a lot of buyback this quarter. We think our shares are undervalued. 
We think we're going after a huge market and we're liking the momentum that we're seeing in the business. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our daily market close show from 3.30 to 5pm on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5pm streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.